Great to be back. Thank you for your welcome last week. I was just saying to Diane uh, that when I left last week, I thought, oh, it feels so familiar coming here. Um, so thank you for your welcome that you gave me. And if you're doing that with other new people here, they will certainly find a home in this place. Now, um, just a couple of quick things. That uh, conference we're doing, um, last year we actually covered the theme of rest. Uh, and so if you want to find out more about it, in the notes that are scattered around, uh, there, there's a sermon outline to follow what we're saying today, but there's also some references to that rest conference and some other resources if you want to take this subject further. It's a perfect time to be looking at the issue of rest because we're just about to leave the rest that we've enjoyed over the January period. And I know some of us are grabbing on with both hands to not uh, head into February and the start of all the, the, uh, the, the, the pressure and the stress of that. But maybe these resources might help you to keep resting through the rest of the year. Um, so the conference coming up is on identity and there couldn't actually be a stronger theme to tackle uh, in the workplace. Uh, people are getting into all sorts of trouble in the workplace because uh, they throw themselves into their job and they don't know why they're doing it but they want to do it well and then they find that uh, the job might be taken from them. So I met with a young guy this week um, who lost his job at Westpac after four years uh, of giving, you know, nine, ten hours a day and they just offloaded him. And he is struggling to work out who he is at the moment. Even though he is a Christian, I had to work through with him and remind him again of some of the things that he is. He's a child of God. He's been saved and rescued by God. Um, he's uh, part of God's family. All those things are becoming more important to him at the moment when he doesn't know what he's doing for uh, most of his day that he was doing at Westpac. Shame on Westpac too, I might add, if you hear the story of it. Um, so last week we looked at what, work, what God had to say about work. And I want you to have a quick look at this, just transport you to Downton Abbey for a moment and uh, just see what uh, they think about work. Thanks, Darren. Next one. What will you do with your time? I've got a job in Ripon. I said I'll start tomorrow. A job? You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course I'll have the weekend. What, what is a weekend? Okay, that's the dowager saying, what is a weekend? And you might be feeling the same uh, if you're working particularly hard at the moment. Um, but God has designed you to have a weekend or a rest in that process. And last week we looked at uh, God making work good and it was designed for us in the beginning. It's a good thing that's gone wrong along the way. Um, that's because we're dislocated from God and dislocated from one another and the creation through our uh, disobedience. Um, God addresses that dilemma by sending Jesus, his son, to work. Jesus' greatest work is when he dies on the cross and reconciles uh, human beings back to himself in that great, massive project 
And the proof that it works is his resurrection, because if anything makes a mockery of our work at the end of the day, it's the fact that we die and our work uh, crumbles and erodes away. So, what we're trying to do today is to think about rest. What is it that God has won for us? And we want to think about it in a godly and a biblical way at the same time. It's one of the great themes of the Bible that runs from Genesis to Revelation, that God has this great plan to bring rest to people, to humanity and those who turn to him. And that's important for us because we live in a hurry-sick world at present. As technology gives us greater capacity, we do more and more, we find ourselves we can do more and more, squeeze more into a day with uh, our apps and our tools that we've got. And we're so busy as Christians sometimes, and we can be doing ministry and we can be doing church, and we can mimic the world at that point because of the way that it's freewheeling around us. And I mentioned last week Dr. Peter Adam, who's an Australian preacher and a teacher and a mentor, and he's been helping ministers for over 40 years, and he made the uncomfortable observation uh, of the modern church culture that Christians may say they love God deeply, but they just don't know how to sit with him anymore. Um, And as a parent, I think one of the greatest legacies of your faith that you can pass on to your children is teaching and modelling to them how to rest because no one else is showing them. So the Old Testament teaches God's people the delight of a thing called the Sabbath. It's designed for them after they were working as slaves in Egypt and it was a constant reminder to them that they were now free. And they didn't have to go back to that world of enslavement. And yet by the time you get to the New Testament in the Bible, you find that the Pharisees have distorted what was this sign of great rescue and and rest into a rod that's whipping the backs of God's people. I, I ride my bike to the city most days, and a couple of times a week on the return trip, I go through the West Terrace cemetery. Um, It's a bit of a scenic route and the first thing I notice when I go into that cemetery is the hush that comes over the peak hour that I've been cycling through. And as you pass the graves of people, you get to look at the headstones and the titles on them. And you realise that some people have worked very hard throughout their lives You realise that some people have had their dreams cut short, some people have loved passionately, some people have not been, have been loathed while they've been alive. And others expected life to deliver more than they hoped it had. But what they all have in common is the dust of their lives have settled in this particular cemetery. And a common phrase that you find carved into the stone on many of them is their collective hope, which are the words, rest in peace. Rest in peace. That's a sobering five-minute detour for me on my way home after a busy day. The topic of rest, we, we could do a whole sermon series on this, and maybe we should, but not today. 
But I've got one sermon and I'm asking you to really strain here and listen up on this uh, subject today because I think it's so critical for us as Christians to get right. Um, And to see that God is holding out a rest for you which is beyond what you could possibly snare in this world. And to do that we're going to look at how Jesus secured rest then we're going to look at how he, sorry, how he struggled with rest as a human being while he was on this earth, how he secured rest for us, how being a Christian is a sort of a type of example of resting just in the act of being a Christian, and then we're going to look at what threatens rest, the great warning not to neglect rest, and finally the irony that we actually have to struggle to rest in our lives, if we're going to seek paradise. So, a cursory glance at the Gospels would tell you that Jesus juggled work and rest. So you meet him in the middle of a storm, he's in the bottom of a boat, and he's asleep because he's exhausted. You hear him teach on rest in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Uh, And we hear him proclaim that he's Lord of the rest in Matthew chapter 12. And that last claim, that was a tipping point for the Pharisees. That's when they decided they had to exterminate Jesus, get rid of him, because at that point he called himself the Lord of rest. And if you really want to understand the sort of rest that God holds out for you in this life and for the future one, you go back to the cross, which is what we looked at in Matthew 27. What goes on at the cross? How does Jesus dying on the cross make him the Lord of rest? If you read the account of the crucifixion, Jesus is writhing, he's wrestling, he's calling out with a loud voice on multiple occasions. There is no peace, there is no quiet slipping away at a hospital bed at this particular scene. He is anything but restful. He is restless. Now, I'm thankful to Tim Keller for this insight that he takes from Isaiah 57. And here's the verse. The wicked are like a tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace for the wicked. And what he says is, The wicked are equated here with restlessness. And what we see on the cross is Jesus taking up all our wickedness, all our sin, and it's displayed in all his restlessness as he dies on the cross. He is writhing and experiencing infinite restlessness, cosmic restlessness, humanity's restlessness for all time. Why? Well, so that he can secure your rest and my rest. He goes through turmoil and then he utters the words, it's finished, it's complete. No more wrestling, no more doing here, it's done. Now, I think this is a really great description of what it means to be a Christian. And one that perhaps the people around you who don't know Jesus might find curious. 
And it's to say this, as a Christian, I am a person who rests not on my own works and achievements, but I rest on his. I rest on the utterly perfect and finished work of Jesus. God accepts me, not because of my record, not because of my achievements or lack of them, but because of what Christ did for me. I am rest assured. I rest by something that's secured for me outside of myself. Wow. What a thing to say to someone about being a Christian. How to explain it. In contrast, our wider culture really struggles to rest. One of the great dangers of technology, more recently COVID, is the acceptance now that we work from home. And now work and rest have been pressed together into this strange sort of confection. And work, we never quite leave work because, you know, we've got it there in the corner of the, you know, desk at home. And home is work and work is home. And work is ground to a fine powder that sprinkles its dust through everything we do. There are no more boundaries when it comes to work and home. No definitive break. And so as Christians, we need to have a recalibrated mindset of what we're doing here. Christians can be thermostats. That is, they can set the temperature on an issue like rest, not thermometers, which merely reflect the temperature of the wider culture of restlessness, where we run around like everybody else with our medals of honour, our badges of longer days and busier work hours and overpacked diaries and chronic tiredness. Alex Pang, in his book, Why You Get More Done When You Rest, he says the research now shows... Um, I think we're on the next one, Darren. Thanks. Um, he says the research shows that a person who rests pragmatically, they will get sharper ideas, they will be a greater reflectors, they will be more creative, they will have better health than the person who just keeps going. Without rest, there's no chance to think about where you're going in life and who you want to be. Now, I know this principle from going to the gym. If I go and do a combination exercise at the gym, then I have to take a break. I have to have a rest between each of the exercises in the set. Otherwise, what happens is the exercise has decreasing value to me as I get tighter and tighter trying to do it. It becomes ineffective. Now, nature understands that principle. If any of you are, gard- are you a gardener here, do you enjoy a veggie patch? Hands up if you, in- if you do. Right. Well, you would know the principle that if you've got enough of these veggie patches around, you try and give one a rest for one season. You let it lie fallow because you can't expect the soil to just keep pumping out whatever you want it to give you um, without a rest. Those of you who cook meat... Um, if you fancy yourself as being a bit of a chef on the barbecue, you will know the value of taking the meat off and letting it rest so that the juices actually come back in and don't all fall away. So it's a principle of our world. And yet at the same time, we think that we can live without night and day. We can live without the seasons. We can live without the rhythm of the week. And the whole thing becomes a constant twilight for us. 
Kevin DeYoung in his book, Crazy Busy, he points out that our counterparts 100 years ago had two and a half hours more sleep than we experience each night. In 100 years, 1924, they were having two and a half hours more sleep than we average nowadays. Theologian Don Carson, he lists that sleep deprivation is one of the six possible causes of us doubting in God and his promises. So sometimes the godliest thing that you could do for yourself is to go and have a good night's sleep or to tell someone else to do that. Listen to the caution of Psalm 127 verse 2. In vain you rise up early and go to bed late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. When you go to sleep at night, in effect, you down tools. And you say, well, I'm not God. I can't keep this world spinning. I'll leave it to the one who can. And more than just struggling with rest, the world is actually actively trying to erode any rest that you experience from God and what's been secured by Jesus. And this is where we move in and have a look at the book of Hebrews. Now, I haven't got it written up like we had before, but if you want to look up on your phone, Hebrews chapter 11, um, then that would be helpful. Hebrews chapter 4, sorry, verses 1 to 11. Hebrews chapter 4, 1 to 11, or if you've got a Bible there. Now, the New Testament depicts the Christian life as a long journey, and the goal at the end of it is rest. And that's certainly the picture of Hebrews. That picture that you can see on the screen... That's what Hebrews is sort of saying to Christians about what the Christian life is like. Um, The Old Testament people of God, they were rescued from slavery. Uh, They were led out of Egypt. They were taken to a place of rest. But along the way, it was a dangerous journey and it took a while to get there. They had to go through a wilderness and the people wavered and they weren't quite sure whether God was going to give them a rest and give them a home in the end. And so that prolonged their unhappy journey and it resulted in a whole generation dying in the wilderness. Now, what's the point of the story? For Christians who get this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, centuries later, thousands of years later. Well, you see, for these people who got the letter, the letter to the Hebrews, they were Christians And they were living through a new wave of hostility to Christianity. And it was very easy for these converted Jews to go and slide back under the umbrella of Judaism, which was tolerated under the Roman Empire. And it might temporarily take the blowtorch off them, but the person who wrote this letter to them, whom we don't know who it is, but this pastor who wrote the letter to them, He said, if you do that, it'll be a denial of everything that Jesus won for you at the cross. You will stop resting, he says, if you do this on the finished work of Christ and you'll return to relying on your own efforts and the achievements of yourself. And such a reversal was a pastoral nightmare for the person who wrote this letter. And so he unpacks three key truths to them in chapter 4 about rest that take them far beyond the Israelites in the middle of the wilderness in the Old Testament. And let's look at them together. You'll see them on the PowerPoint there. The first one is 
that God's rest existed before the promised land. So there was a rest that happened in creation long before God took those people out from Egypt and took them to their promised land. It was a thing. Rest was a thing. The second thing is that God's rest remained after the promised land had happened. And it still remains that some can enter that rest in verse 6. And then in verses 9 and 11, he declares that God's rest is open today for us. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So what Hebrews is doing is it's equating ultimate rest with getting into God's kingdom in the future. Otherwise, they would have got it when Joshua led them into the promised land, but they didn't. The rest of completion that God proclaims at creation is what he's longing to give his people and wants them to enter into. And we, we experience that in part now because we have the deposit of his Holy Spirit in our lives taking up residence, but we don't have the full extent of it. We don't have full rest this side of heaven. And we understand this because we do this in other areas of life. We use this idea of partially having something to help us keep going to get there to the end. It's often the thought of a holiday that will keep you pinned in a difficult place at work, isn't it? The knowledge that the weekend's coming will get you through a hell of a week at work. And the hope of ceasefire for those caught in wars when they're raging, that's what they hold on to and help them to keep going. It's a delayed gratification. That's what Hebrews 4 is talking about. The pursuit of eternal rest is costly. It's a pilgrimage. It's a journey where the disciple at the end of their days can cease from their labours as God did from his. That's what he's holding out for us. Andrew Del Banco, in his book, The American Dream, he says, hope is the way that we overcome the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. Now, isn't that just sobering? Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. There is absolutely no question that God holds out rest. Rest is coming. You need to hold on to that hope says the book of Hebrews. How does that compare with your current picture of rest when I say the word rest? I mean, maybe it's a long soaking bath for your tired muscles. Maybe it's a, a desert beach fringed, uh, sorry, a deserted beach fringed by shady palms. Maybe it's curling up in front of a crackling fire, although that's hard to imagine on a day like this. But whatever it is, I bet you when you do it, you unconsciously equate it with heaven when you say, ah, oh, this is heaven. Could just be having a cup of coffee, but whatever it is, you automatically take it to being a picture, a symbol for you of what you hope for in the long term. Tim Keller describes that feeling in us as an inner, deep, inner machinery, wired in our DNA, constantly murmuring for eternity. Constantly murmuring for eternity. God's picture of rest eclipses what we settle for. 
and what so often falls far short of our expectations. And C.S. Lewis captures this. He says, We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. The Bible is urging us to wrestle to rest. Now, I know that sounds a bit of an irony, but let's look at it. Hebrews' picture of rest is costly. Becoming more like Jesus is not just about, you know, sort of flopping over the finish line one day and collapsing. The word strive there, or to make effort to do this, in verse 11, is used to describe the sort of intense concentration of an athlete that's necessary to try and reach their goal. And what begs the question, I think, is over what sort of things have you done that in your life? Where have you given that absolute focus? Well, you know, sometimes it might be a renovation and trying to get it done. Maybe it's ticking off a bucket list of holiday spots. Maybe it's, you know, chasing a woman or a bloke. If you're single, maybe it's trying to start a family. Maybe it's landing that job that will change everything. But whatever you throw your energy into, the Bible is saying it's inferior to where you should be putting it. And that energy you put into it will be exhausting for you. How do you know if your drivenness is flawed? Here are some diagnostic questions. To know if your drive that you have is on the wrong things. Do I check work emails and phone messages when I say to myself I've knocked off? Do people preface their requests to me by saying, I know you were a very busy person? Do family and friends complain that they don't have enough of you? If you've got young children, do you pray for them regularly? Do you even have time to pray for yourself? in your busy life? Do you have a hobby which you can go and get absorbed by that's completely different? Do you stop and eat together with people at least once a day? Life teaches us the dangers of neglecting rest. We end up with shallow relationships, health risks, addictions, and Hebrews is simply taking the negative result of human beings failing to take proper physical rest and applying that to what happens if you don't take spiritual rest. It's a spiritual failure. It's warning you not to miss out and misappropriating God's ultimate answer to your restlessness. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The Christian life, you know, is a day-by-day moment-by-moment proposition of trusting and resting on the promises of God. You don't just do it once when you become a Christian. You go on doing it the rest of your life until God takes you home. And it's being captured by that vision and not lesser things that you come across in this life 
that you need, those things will airbrush out this big picture of where you're going. The ultimate rest over restlessness. So here are some tips on how to secure rest, how to strive to enter that rest. Keep working it out with other Christians. I mean, you've got small groups, home groups, community groups that you're going to be part of this year, it sounds like. That's a great place to brainstorm with other Christians. Well, how are you resting? How are you putting work into place? Uh, What are the distractions that take your eyes off the future rest that God promises? How can we keep ourselves from being overwhelmed by what we're doing? Secondly, you could start trying to practice real rest now. It's not enough for you to work like a demon and then just take time off like that in life. It means fewer goals, not trying to have it all, maybe saying no to something because you sense that if you keep going, you may be distracted from following Jesus. One person tells me that the reason why they can say no, and this is, they're a very committed Christian, why they can say no to some requests is because they think about what they've said yes to. And that helps them. Make yourself accountable for a busy patch in your life. All of us have times when we have to work and we have to keep working. Now, maybe it's over a project or a new role or we're starting up a new business and it requires us to overwork for a period of time. And maybe put a time limit on that. Maybe you say, look, it's going to take me two years to get this in place. But tell somebody else, make yourself accountable to someone you trust and love. And when the two years are up, tell that person to come to you and say, you said it was going to take two years. Time's up. Stop, get that person to stop you from making this normative in your life. Because that's what happens. You take on more work, you do, 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 and you go at that pace, and you go up a little bit more, and you go up, and there's never the rest in between. There's never the, the contrast. Build unstructured time into your life that's unplanned and undiarized. And that will give you time for your body and your soul and your mind to free will. And things then can bubble to the surface. So several years ago, I remember this, this is a, a rebuke to me. We had the governor of South Australia come to the church and I was preaching. So it was after the horrific bushfires over on the Air Peninsula and there was massive loss of lives on that occasion. And so she was sitting in the front row and while I was preaching, she just started to sob. So at the end of the service, I thought, oh, I better do something here. So I went up and I asked her, what it was about the message that triggered the um, tears. And she looked at me, very confused. She said, oh, nothing about the the sermon. It's just the first time I've actually stopped in the last week. And it's all caught up with me, what I've seen. So we need that time to stop and process what's going on for us. We need that rest. There's an unhelpful drivenness in human beings and what we end up doing is we try and validate the space that we're taking up in this world. Here's my justification for being here. And if you're doing that, it's a wearing task. You never quite know whether it's enough. You keep proving yourself to yourself and to 
people you love and even to your enemies at some point, and it wears you to the bone. And in fact, what happens is you get enslaved by your own drivenness. So ask yourself, am I truly resting on what Jesus worked so hard to secure for me? Or have I sort of slipped back to trying to do it myself? The man who strove to build bigger barns to store his harvest, well, you can't get a better work work ethic than that. But Jesus says about him, he's a fool. Because his drivenness is going into the wrong things. He needs the right focus. Entering the rest that God secures through Jesus for us at the cross, trying to take that on board, it requires persistence and focus and not slipping back into flawed or inferior offerings. And as Christians, we need to be advocating rest where we work. We need to lead on rest. I mean, it's our... It's our point of difference to the world and to the well-being movement. It's an outworking of what it means for God to liberate you and rescue you. A year ago, I helped a mate of mine uh, down at Victor Harbour. He had to move a whole lot of stuff. And he had a bad back and asked me, could I help? He's a marine biologist, so after we did all the work on one day, the next, uh, he said that night, I'm going to take you fishing tomorrow morning down to Petrel Cove. And we got up very, very early, went down to Petrel Cove, and I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not a fisherman, all right? So I didn't know the first thing about what I was doing. But it was a picture-perfect day, the sun was rising across the water, there was enough warmth in the air to be knee to waist deep in the water and I was learning how to cast a rod and the fish were biting. So it looked like this. This is what we came back with. So these yellow-eyed mullet were just coming up and kissing me. It was, I, I, I have never experienced anything quite like this. Seeing them dancing on the waves as... You know, the wave would come up and you just see all these yellow-eyed mullet there. Um, it was amazing. It was so perfect. And I remember thanking God aloud for his creation. You need to drink in those magical moments. And that's from someone who doesn't fish. And when I think back on it, I was winching in my head, thinking in the morning, scrabbling around in the dark, trying to get all this gear together, thinking, well, I better humour this person, they're trying to be nice to me. But I had no idea what was ahead. And how amazing it would be that day. Maybe you need to do something this week that reminds you of where your rest is and what's coming. 
In the closing pages of the Bible, it says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they shall rest from their labours. So that tension between work and rest, it'll be over. Finally resolved. And you'll kick back and you'll reflect on what's been done. And you'll join the chorus of creation. And you'll say with them, it's good. It's very good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have created us to work, but you're also holding out rest. Help us to be distinctive Christians who know what rest is and know what we're waiting for. Please help us not to be enslaved. Please help us to reflect the great rest you won for us at the cross. Amen.